60 years. It's a long time. Double my life. 60 years. Now it is a really remarkable thing that this church is celebrating its 60th anniversary. But you have to remember that the Christian tradition is 2,000 years old. So when you say 60 years out of 2,000, it sounds a little less impressive. But to live, to survive as a church in a time such as this is worth celebrating. Because the last 60 years have been marked, much to our chagrin and disappointment, with the decline of the church in America. But here we are, friends. This church still stands. And not only are we here, but we are celebrating our being here today. We have much to celebrate. Not just the anniversary of our church, but the gospel. The good news being made manifest in a place like Woodbridge to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. And seeing as it is the church's anniversary, we can't really know who we are without knowing where we've been. You know, Cokesbury started in that strange and picturesque time we call the 1950s. In the 1950s, everything felt right. We were on the other side of the greatest war ever fought in the history of humanity, and we won. Hawaii and Alaska were added to the Union in 1959. You know what else happened in 1959? The Barbie doll made her debut. And gas? Gas only cost 25 cents for a gallon. Now, we're an inherently nostalgic people. It's very easy to look back and remember and think about how things were so good. We can turn on an old movie, or we can remember a particular politician, or we can even look at a fashion trend from days long by, and we can think fondly of each of them. But the 50s, for whatever good came from the 50s, there was an equal number, if not, num- uh, if not more, number of things that we could call bad. You know what else happened in 1959? The first Americans were killed in Vietnam. The civil rights movement was spreading all across the country. And in 1959, more churches were being bombed than had ever been bombed before in the South. Only because the people who worshipped inside happened to be black. In 1959, the scapegoat of communism was causing us to ostracize and at times imprison some of our own citizens. I once heard someone describe the 50s as a time when everything was black and white, when everyone knew right from wrong. And yet, if you just look at a list of major events from 1959, you'll see that it's not a time of being black and white. It is a time of gray, when everything was confused. But 60 years ago, a handful of people from our community started meeting, and they called themselves Cokesbury. To those individuals, the time was ripe for the gospel and the sharing of the good news. So they did. They knocked on people's doors. They said, come join us on Sunday morning. We want to share Jesus with you. But then something changed. It's not possible to pinpoint exactly what happened, but we all know that we live in a very different world than the world of 1959. In 1959, everyone assumed that you would grow up, that you would get married, you'd have your 2.5 children, you'd pay your taxes, and you would go to church every single Sunday. Businesses were closed on Sundays because everyone had a church to go to. And it was a major moment in the week for all people in all sorts of communities. But that world is long gone. Which leads us to the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. I know that as you were hearing it being read, this is a strange text. Even stranger to think this is the one I want to preach on for the anniversary of our church. 
And I will plainly admit that on this side of writing the sermon, maybe it wasn't a very good idea. But we might as well listen to what God has to say to us today through God's word. I think the parable ends on a very disconcerting note. Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which seems like I should stand here today and look at people like you and tell you, y'all need to be a little more humble. Y'all need to be a little more humble. But this parable isn't really about humility at all. If it's about anything, it's about futility. It's about our foolish notion that we can do anything to get right with God. Listen, there's a man. He is good and he is faithful. He's not a crook. He's not a womanizer. He's not an alcoholic. He loves his wife. He even gets down on the floor and plays with his kids when he comes home from work every afternoon. He tithes when the offering plate comes around. He is exactly unlike the tax collector. Now, the tax collector is a legal crook. He steals from his fellow people and he bleeds money out of them as much as he possibly can. He's like a mid-level mafia boss who skims off the top for himself as he sends the money up the chain. He's got enough cars and boats that he can never drive all of them. And they both show up for church. The good, faithful man thinks that he's awesome. And he thanks God that he's not like all those other delinquents in the sanctuary. The tax collector, he doesn't even look up. He looks down and he hits himself in the chest and he says, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus presents these two to us. As the means by which grace is communicated. And it's completely unfair. Because it's not the good and faithful man who goes home justified. It's the tax collector. Think about it this way. What would you do if the tax collector was sitting next to you in church on Sunday? How would you react if you saw him skimming some money out of the offering plate rather than putting it in and putting that money in his pocket? How would you respond if he had a new honey sitting next to him in the pew every single Sunday? I mean, it's not right, right? The parable is one of Jesus' final declarations about the business of grace. Grace, the totally unmerited and undeserved gift from God. And here, with resounding conviction, Jesus tells the disciples for the thousandth time that the whole game is rigged and that the whole game is unfair. Grace is completely unfair. It is unfair because we think what we think is good and true and beautiful, it matters little to God. Ultimately, none of us will ever match up to God's goodness. And instead of kicking us out of the party for being unworthy, God says, I'm going to make you worthy. So you see what that means? It means that the good religious work of the Pharisee It's not able to justify him any more than the crazy sins of the tax collector can kick him out. The whole point of this parable, of almost all the parables, is that these two men are dead. They are dead in the eyes of God. They can't do anything to get God to do anything. Their sins can't prevent them from getting in, nor can their good deeds help them get in. They have no hope in the world, unless there is someone who can raise the dead. And even here today, knowing the condition of their condition, knowing the condition of our condition, even in the midst of celebrating 60 years as a worshiping community, perhaps we understand what Jesus is saying in our minds, but our hearts are desperate to believe the opposite. We we might not like to admit it, but we all establish our identities by seeing how we look through other people's eyes. 
We spend our days fixing our words and fixing our looks in front of the mirror of other people. Thinking their opinions will help us discern who we're supposed to be so that we don't have to think about the nightmare of who we really are. And that's where the parable stings the most. Because this story, more than most of them, is so resoundingly unfair that we can't bring ourselves to admit the truth. We're not good enough. I'm not, and none of you are. And we fear the tax collector's acceptance. We fear it because it means we need to accept those who are derelicts around us. But it also means that we have to accept ourselves for who we are. Knowing how bad we really, really are. We fear the tax collector's acceptance because it means that none of us will ever really be free. Until we stop trying to save ourselves and justify ourselves all the time. And that's all we really do all the time. We do it in ways big and small. We purchase things that we shouldn't, all in the hope that those things will bring us the approval in the eyes of other people. We posture bits of morality and ethics and even politics with some vague hope that it will put us in better standing with God. But as long as we struggle, like the Pharisee, to do everything perfectly perfect all the time, we will resent the unfairness of God to all of our struggling. God is unfair. It's true. But God's unfairness is actually good news. Because if God were really fair, fair according to the terms set by the world, then God would have closed the door to the party a long, long time ago. Which leads us back to what we're celebrating today. Because no matter who we identify with in the story, the good religious liar or the honest tax collector, there is a really strong temptation to leave church every week thinking in our minds, Thank God I'm not like those other people. We do it in church and we do it when we leave church. We pass someone on the street or we see the name of a politician on someone's bumper sticker or we read someone else's Facebook status and all of a sudden we say, Thank God I'm not like that. It's even present in celebrating the 60th anniversary of the church. Because isn't surviving in a time like this with the marketplace of ideas a subtle form of thanking God we're not like those other people? You know, Christians, at least in the last few decades, have tried to avoid being seen as different from other people. We've done so out of fear of seeming too strange or too fundamentalist or too evangelical. And we've been content with letting our faith become privatized and just something we do on Sunday. But because we've tried really hard to not seem different, it's not really clear why anyone would want to be like us. Why anyone would want to come hang out with us, a group of people who started meeting in 1959? Or to make things exponentially worse, we've established a Christian identity such that it seems that only perfect people can be present in the pews on Sunday. If the expectations are, oh, we just want to seem like everybody else, but at the same time, we want everyone to know that we're the perfect people in our community, it's no wonder people don't want to come to church on Sunday. The truth of the matter is that being Christian means being different. But unlike how we so often present this in worship or in the greater cultural ethos, it doesn't mean being like the good religious man, thanking God we're not like those other people. It means admitting that all of us are really like the tax collector. You see, following Jesus 
means admitting the condition of our condition. It means falling to the floor Sunday after Sunday with the same confession on our lips. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it also means knowing that before we can even bring those words to our lips, that God has already nailed every one of our sins to the cross. That's what makes us different. Not being able to keep a religious roof over our heads for 60 years, but 60 years of rediscovering week after week how good the good news really is. That's why we come to the table over and over and over again to be made one with the one whose humility on the cross turned out to be a victory over sin and over death. It's in the bread. It's in the cup. It's in the cross that we see how unfair God really is. Because again, if grace were really fair, then none of us would be worthy to come to the table, whether we're a publican or a Pharisee. But thanks to God, that God is unfair and has made room for each and every one of us at his table. So here's for the next 60 years. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.